I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today, and you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. And by the way, we now have a merchandise shop on our website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. There was a time when teaching creationism in public school science classes was fairly commonplace as far as that goes, but that ended with the Supreme Court decision. But it popped back up in the form of intelligent design, an idea that says we were all created by a designer, whoever it was, wink wink. Uh, Ten years ago, the Dover Area School District in Pennsylvania was requiring educators to teach intelligent design in the classroom. Several church-state separation and science education groups filed a lawsuit against the district. And on December 20th, 2005, a judge ruled that teaching intelligent design was indeed unconstitutional. It wasn't science, and it didn't belong in a science class. It was a major decision that effectively shut down the intelligent design movement. And the lead expert witness for the science side in that case was Dr. Ken Miller. If you took high school biology, there's a good chance Dr. Miller wrote your textbook. He's also the author of Finding Darwin's God and Only a Theory, and he's a professor at Brown University. Uh, Dr. Miller, uh, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, thank you. Uh, Very happy to be here. Uh, Let me correct one thing that you said in the introduction. Yes. Which is you said that several science education groups had sued the Dover Area School Board. Yes. Um, That's actually not quite true. Uh, The lawsuit was actually filed by 11 parents of students at Dover Area High School. um, Gotcha. Because those those are the people who had legal standing. Sure. Uh, Then I should be – I'm sorry. I'll correct myself and say those groups supported those plaintiffs. That's exactly right. They were supported by the ACLU. Uh, by a couple of private attorneys, attorneys working pro bono, and also by a number of science education groups, principally the National Center for Science Education. Fantastic. Thank you for correcting me on that. So here's the question I the biggest question I have now. It's been 10 years since that decision. Uh, can proponents of evolution finally relax? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. And I don't think proponents of effective science education in general, can relax at all. We have a number of issues um, that we really have to keep fighting for in schools. One is uh, the the proper teaching of the theory of evolution, but we also um, uh, face opposition in terms of teaching atmospheric science and climate change, um, which is a controversial issue in many parts of the country. And that has sort of spilled over into some textbook uh, controversies. And I can can uh, tell you about ones in Texas and a couple of other states. Um, and, you know, other things like like uh, routine sex education, uh, this is a controversial issue. Um, I discovered when I wrote about uh, human embryonic stem cell research in the latest versions of our textbooks um, that that can be controversial as well in terms of even covering the basic science behind it. So I don't think that anyone who's in favor of effective and complete science education can relax at any time. So is the intelligent design movement still around? Are they still uh, trying to get it into school somehow? Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, the the, the Kids Miller case um, really destroyed intelligent design 
uh, in, and its pretensions to be a legitimate scientific theory. Uh, that was a very clear during the Kitzmiller trial. Um, we, it, you know, the, the trial went on for seven weeks, and by the end of the trial, it was very clear to anyone in attendance, and I'm talking about neutral observers, reporters, just members of the public who were following it, that the school board was going to lose that case because the three weeks that the intelligent design side, side took to put on their case resulted in, in self-contradictions as to what constitutes a scientific theory, what intelligent design teaches, what experimental evidence for intelligent design would be like. It also was featured, uh, it also was highlighted by some really disastrous cross-examinations of the expert witnesses for intelligent design in which they tripped themselves up over and over again. So it was very clear that intelligent design kind of collapsed as a pretend scientific theory. But what happened immediately after that was that the proponents of this idea adopted another strategy. And their other strategy was to push so-called academic freedom uh, laws so that, uh, and there is one in the state of Louisiana, for example, um, that basically said that teachers should feel free to bring in opposing points of view on controversial scientific theories. And evolution is usually mentioned as being among those controversial scientific theories. So we're back to the argument about teaching the controversy with respect to evolution and protecting the academic freedom of teachers to do so, never mind the fact that there is no controversy in the scientific uh, community uh, as to the efficacy of evolution to explain the origin of the species. So what sort of things do they bring in to say, well, here's what the other side of evolution has to say? Well, a good example is in the state science standards that were approved at the very last minute by the uh, Board of Education of the state of Texas in 2009. Uh, and Texas recently underwent a statewide science adoption. That was in 2013 and 2014. Um, and our textbook, uh, the one that I co-author with my, my good friend and colleague, Joe Levine, had to meet those standards. So, for example, uh, one of the standards uh, written into law by the Texas board was, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close to the exact wording, um, students will critique the ability of Darwinian evolution to account for the complexity of the living cell. Um, so in other words, and, uh, in other words, basically students are supposed to critically analyze the ability of Darwinian evolution to account for the fact that the, the living cell is such a complex structure, which it certainly is. Now, the people who put that in there um, said all we're asking students to do is to do critical analysis of scientific theories, and that's a good thing. And I agree, that would be a good thing. But the reason they wrote that in, quite frankly, was because they thought that Darwinian evolution could not account for the complexity of the living cell. And so by asking students and teachers to consider that, they hoped this would cast doubt on the theory of evolution. Now, interestingly, um, when I saw that standard, uh, what Joe and I did was we went to our editor and said, in revising our national edition for Texas, is there a way we could squeeze four <laughs> additional pages into one of the evolution chapters in our book? And eventually we got permission to do that. Um, and I used those four additional pages to explain to students exactly how evolution accounts for the complexity of the living cell. So the irony of this, and this was picked up by our critics in Texas, 
is that the Texas edition of our uh, national textbook actually has more content on evolution and evolutionary theory uh, than the textbooks that we provide to any other state. So you know, so you they need got, a they special. Got, they got what they they got what they asked for. You get Texas gets a special edition of your textbook because they need a little more education on the subject. Yes, and we had great <laughs> fun writing it, and now um, the reaction to that additional material on cellular and molecular evolution, the reaction among teachers has been so positive that the next chance we get to open up a revision of our national edition, it'll go into the national edition as well. Fantastic. So we thank. We, we thank Texas for, for providing us that opportunity. I don't think I've ever heard a science educator thank Texas for anything before, so that's good. <laughs> so what are some of the biggest challenges then right now to scientific literacy? Because, again, 10 years ago, you think this is going to be like the death knell for the anti-science movement. It's clearly not. So what do you get most frustrated by when it comes to kids who are learning science, biology, chemistry? Well, well, first of all, um, I think there are very good signs with respect to science education in American schools in the decade since the Dover case. Um, uh, about a month ago, we had a little celebration of the Kitzmiller versus Dover case, its 10th anniversary, um, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is where the trial took place. And many of us who were uh, part of the winning team on that trial, the parents, uh, the attorneys, uh, a lot of the witnesses, we gathered and we partied uh, to celebrate coming together. We've become lifelong friends as a result of this trial. And one of the things that we noted is that in those 10 years, acceptance of evolution uh, among educators and also among young people has increased in the United States. And it's actually increased pretty dramatically. There was a Pew Foundation poll on public attitudes towards science that was published this year, um, and they asked about climate science, about embryonic stem cell research, about a whole host of issues. One of the ones they asked about was evolution, and they broke down acceptance of evolution uh, uh, demographically among religious groups, among political party affiliation, among some other factors. But for the first time, I saw that they broke down acceptance of evolution by age group. And the American people, when they're usually polled about evolution, you never get more than 40 or 45 percent of people accepting the theory of evolution. And then you get about an equal amount opposed to it. Well, here's the interesting stat from that, which is among people aged 18 to 28. And these are basically people who have graduated from high school since the Kitzmiller case. Among people aged 18 to 28, acceptance of evolution rises to almost 75%. And that's by far the highest polling numbers that I've ever seen in the United States. And what it suggests to me is that increased emphasis on science education, even the much despised high stakes testing that we do now as a result of No Child Left Behind and as a result of Race to the Top, these things are actually having beneficial effects in terms of getting science across to our young people. And I hope I hope we continue that emphasis because I think it's working. I don't know if the Pew Research uh, Center's numbers reflected this. Do you know why these numbers would be so high? Is it because they are learning evolution correctly or at least better in class? Or is it because of what they're hearing in the culture? That if you disagree with evolution, you are part of the other side, the side of Chick-fil-A and anti-gay marriage. 
Yeah, well, I think I think that's part of it. Um, I think both are part of it, which is I think you know science education has gotten a little bit better. We've gotten you know as a country we've gotten a little bit worried about the fact that we are not educating our kids in science and math as well as some of our international competitors, um, and that's an issue. Um, but I also think there is a cultural thing. Um, one of the things um, that has come out, I'm trying to remember the name of the law professor who's, who's done surveys and written articles about this. He's at Yale. I've, Dan Cahan, K-A-H-A-N, um, has written a couple articles about this, about, um, uh, uh, about rejection of science. And one of, the things, one of the things that he's discovered is you don't change people's minds by flooding them with facts. So in other words, if I, if I come across someone who's a, a climate change denier and I say, look, um, let's look at average global temperatures. Let's look at the temperature, uh, average temperatures of the oceans. Let's look at metrics we have for uh, sea level rise. Uh, let's look at satellite measurements of atmospheric composition and so forth. Um, Kay has pointed out that many studies show that that actually hardens people's attitudes um, that presented with a flood of contradictory data, they tend to retreat into their own beliefs. But the interesting thing is that what Kahan argues is that what really matters is willingness to identify culturally with science. And that, in effect, people accept or reject science basically on whether or not they identify with the culture of science. And I think there's a great deal of truth, for, truth to that. And increasingly, and you mentioned this, the culture of anti-science has been identified with a lot of viewpoints, and the gay marriage example is a good one, with a lot of viewpoints that are really losing ground in this country to the point of view, um, and, and we all know that acceptance of gay marriage in terms of its demographics among the population has changed in, in an incredibly dramatic way in just the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and I think that's helping. Uh, to promote a cultural identification with the scientific enterprise and the scientific community. And I really think that that cultural identification is strongest among the young, and I think that's one of the reasons behind the, the few results. Yeah, and we've also seen that same age demographic. Those are also the least religious demographic we've ever seen. They're not all atheists, but they, they don't necessarily believe in organized religion. Yeah, no, I, no, I think that's true. And, 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 and I say this as a... As a uh, the faithful and practicing Roman Catholic, um, that an awful lot, uh, probably most, of the opposition to evolution and the teaching of evolution uh, comes from uh, a, a deeply religious motivation. Um, so the fact that people are becoming less religious, obviously, is helping to that. And it also helps, and I'm speaking out now as a partisan Catholic, it also helps that we now have a pope. Uh, in, in Vatican uh, in Vatican City, Pope Francis, who not only was trained as a scientist as a young man, but when he was asked about, for example, the Big Bang, he just gave a shrug and he said, "Of course, <laughs> of course, evolution and the Big Bang are real." Um, and now that doesn't surprise me, given the recent history of the Church and its embrace of science and its sponsorship of science. But I think an awful lot of Catholics who reflexively believe that evolution was inherently anti-religious when they saw the leader of the church saying, of course evolution is real, uh, gave it a second thought. And I think that helps to promote the culture of science as well. Don't worry, I got a lot of questions about your Roman Catholicism. Those are coming up. <laughs> um, 
I did have a question. What what effect do things like the Creation Museum and the Noah's Ark theme park that they're building? Do you think those have any effect on science literacy or what it you know science education in general? Well, the people building those things and donating to those projects certainly hope they will. Um, that's the entire intent of this. Um, I, I don't think they're really having much effect. Um, it turns out, as I read the newspapers, that both the ARC project and the Creation Museum are encountering financial problems. And I think that's uh, partially a reflection of the fact that even their backers uh, realize that they haven't been quite as effective as they had hoped. Um, I remember being in Ohio for a public lecture a couple of years ago and being asked by someone in the audience um, whether or not I would support the idea of uh, teachers having class trips to the Creation Museum in order, as they put it, to present the other side of the story, look at the other viewpoint. And I put it out that Ken, the, the, the infamous Ken Ham, yeah. who's behind the Creation Museum, actually describes the Creation Museum as a ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and I thank Ken Ham for that, because what I pointed out was that if your public school system basically takes students on field trips to churches, to synagogues, and to mosques where people minister to them in their specific faith, then by all means, the Creation Museum would be just fine. But I don't think there's any public school system that says, let's visit a mosque, let's be preached to by an imam, and uh, let's, let's weigh that against Christianity, against Judaism, and so forth. So um, there's been a general appreciation that these are indeed religiously uh, inspired efforts, um, that students who visit these places are going to be preached to, they're involved in an effort at being proselytized, um, and I don't think they're having the effect that their backers have hoped, and their backers are beginning to, to lose heart. And, you know, I, you know, the other part of my answer to that question is if you like to take kids on field trips where – they are intentionally being lied to about the geological history of the earth, and by all means, go ahead. I've have you been there, by the way, to the Creation Museum? No, no, I have not, and I'm I'm very disappointed by that. A couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at the meeting of the, the annual meeting of the American Paleontological Society, and because of another commitment, I got there. A day after the meeting started, I got there in time for my talk, but I got there the day after the meeting started. And the first day of the meeting was a field trip across the river <laughs> to the to the uh, to the Creation Museum. I'm sure they had and a blast. Belie- <laughs> so, so believe it or not, believe it or not, when people were going to the museum and they had to buy tickets, of course, they had a checklist. And I was told by people there that they kept asking the people, "Is Miller coming along?" Because they wanted to, they wanted to see me there if I was at the museum. But unfortunately, I did not go. Oh man! Um, a, a lot of my friends who did go took pictures. There were a lot of buzz about it. Um, what I have heard is that the quality of the museum, in terms of the professionalism of the displays, and the subtlety of the text, and the quality of the animatronics, there rivals Disney World or Universal Studios. So, and that's part of its danger. It's done so professionally yeah. um, that, um, you know, I think to some extent that people can be misled by it. 
Yeah, as someone who has been there twice, it is a beautiful place, but it is you're just you're you feel bad for the kids who are being led around in this museum. You're like, no, you're not learning the right stuff. Yeah, as more than one person has said, this museum was put together by people who think the Flintstones was a documentary. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so you you brought up your Roman Catholicism, so let's let's get that off, uh, get at, that out of the way really quick. Do you get more shit for being a religious man who promotes science or a scientist who happens to be religious? And I realize Catholicism's not Catholicism and science have a good relationship. So that said, well, we've been trying for four hundred years to make up for that whole Galileo thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I think so you finally think apologized. There's a, certain, there's a certain amount of that. Um, um. It's very difficult, and you know this, I'm sure, personally. When you speak out on any issue, you will get criticism, Mm -hmm. and it comes with the territory. It's to be expected, Um, and taking the positions that I do, yeah, I kind of get it from both sides. So um, uh, uh, it's difficult for me to weigh, you know, how much is coming from one side and how much is coming from the other. Um, So, for example— um, uh, I think of people who have written uh, blog columns and other postings that are critical of me. Uh, there are people like P.Z. Myers. Uh, Jerry Coyne is another example. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, I like them both. Um, I consider myself uh, longtime friends with Jerry, and occasionally um, uh, I will post to Jerry's blog, and sometimes he writes favorably about articles I've written or things I've said. Um, I've been on a couple radio shows with PZ, um, and I one of the first time I was on the radio with PZ, the first thing I told him was I consider myself a fan. Yeah, I read for I read for Angular almost every day, and I think PZ has a great talent for um, a, on his blog for explaining really difficult uh, scientific principles in evolution and developmental biology, and explaining them in a way that is really easy to understand. Um, so I like him for that. Um, they're both uh, not just uh, they're both not just atheists, but I would characterize them as evangelical atheists <laughs> um, who would love to save my metaphorical soul uh, by by saving me from Christianity. Uh, on the other side, uh, of course, naturally I get criticized by the anti-evolution crowd. Uh, one of my favorite. Uh, pieces of criticism actually was uh, a piece that I believe Bill Dembski wrote, and you can still find it on the internet. And it's called "Ken Miller: A Wasted Life." Ouch! Um, and it and it talks about how hopeless it is uh, to try to reconcile science and faith, and how I've spent my career and I've wasted all this effort and talent and all this other sort of stuff. And I remember when that was first posted, I got an email from someone who was sort of a fan of my books and public appearances saying, um, you know, Dembski is writing this. He's drifted from one position to another. He hasn't been able to set up anything stable. Um, uh, he at first volunteered to testify in the Kitz Miller trial. And then at the last minute he pulled out so he wouldn't have to be deposed. So he went back on his promises and you're a tenured full professor at an Ivy league institution <laughs> Uh, co-author of the, the the most widely used high school biology book in the country, and yours is the waste of life? Come on. <laughs> um, so, so you expect a little bit of that. And the other thing I should tell you, um, and you may or may not know this, is that I'm also a sports official. I umpire um, uh, baseball and softball. And in fact, in softball, I 
at uh, NCAA. I'm a collegiate umpire, and I work games all the way up to Division One. Um, that the kind of temperament that is required <laughs> to be an umpire with fans and teams and coaches yelling at you uh, has helped me enormously to sort of navigate the rough waters of academia, which are actually mild by comparison. You're used so to having it, all sides coming after you and being pissed off at you. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. <laughs> so, but uh, you know, but one of the one of the nice things about sports officiating, and I will tell you this honestly, and I think most other referees or umpires would tell you this as well, which is there's nothing quite as satisfying as when you umpire or you referee a vigorously contested contest, and you have to make calls against both sides. You get some boos, you get some groans, and then when the game is all over, you walk off the field, and somebody leans over and looks you in the eyes and says, "Hey, Blue, nice game." Nice. Uh, that's a good feeling. That is and, and, a good feeling. And, and I don't know if that carries over into academic life, but that's what I strive for. That's great. So let, let's ask the obvious question about religion and science here. If you are a practicing Roman Catholic, you're someone who believes in miracles, a virgin birth, Jesus being in a consecrated communion wafer, uh, those things go against what science uh, what evidence would suggest is true. So when Jerry Coyne says something like, you know, religion and science are completely incompatible, where is he getting it wrong? Well, I think he's getting it wrong in, in, in a couple of ways. And when you said that those things go against science, uh, l- let's start out with something that I consider small, but is at the central, yeah, uh, at, 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 at the center of Catholic belief. And that's, that's the, uh, Transubstantiation, the consecration of the host. Yeah. Um, PZ, you know, very famously uh, managed to get a friend of his to palm a consecrated communion wafer. Um, and then he polled his readers on uh, the best way to desecrate the communion wafer. Um, the, the, and he pointed out over and over again hey, it's just a cracker, it's just a cracker, it's just a cracker. Mm-hmm. Well, anybody who's ever been to communion, um, and tasted the host in their mouth, as I have, knows very well that that is exactly the physical appearance uh, of, of the communion wafer. Um, it has it has protein in it. It has gluten, but it doesn't have collagen. It's not flesh. It's not, you know, it doesn't have animal protein. Um, and uh, at the mass I go to every Sunday morning, we also have communion wine, and it's wine. There's no question about it. That's the physical appearance. There's nothing in Catholic doctrine that says the physical nature of the bread and wine is changed by transubstantiation. What is changed is its spiritual nature. Now, if you're, if you're, if you're an atheist or, or, or a skeptic, uh, you don't believe there is such a thing as a spiritual nature. Um, so fair enough. There's absolutely nothing um, about the doctrine of transubstantiation which can be tested by physical, by physical means. And that's what science does. In, in science, we are inherently limited by our ability, which is only to investigate uh, things of a material nature, matter and energy. Um, and in that respect, there it is. Um, so, so that's why the doctrine of, of uh, the, the host being changed into the flesh of Jesus it isn't really contradicted by science. It's something that science has to be agnostic on. I'll give you one other example. Please. Um, I was at a... Uh, uh, I was privileged to share the platform about 10 years ago at a conference at New York University on faith and secularism with Richard Dawkins. And I have always, and I still do, I consider Richard a friend. Richard has been very kind and generous to me. If you read, for example, 
if you look at my name in the index of the God's illusion, <laughs> you'll see that Rich, Richard gives me about a page and a half. It's all about my work against intelligent design, and it's very complimentary. I also know from other people that Richard has actually promoted my books in Great Britain. Um, he's told people who are Christians and are troubled by evolution to read my book, Finding Darwin's God, because it will explain how a Christian can accept evolution. And, and for Richard, that's important. Um, so I've always liked Richard. I, I, I admire him immensely in terms of his writing and his style and his ability uh, uh, as a popularizer of science. And I don't say, I don't use the word popularizer to denigrate him. I think that's right. very important. He can communicate science, science very well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's a great asset to the scientific community, no question about it. So at one point during this conference, we had each made brief talks, and then we had a panel discussion, and Richard turned to me, and he said, don't give me any of this virgin birth nonsense. If I was back there in Bethlehem, I would have gone around and I would have done some cheek swabs, and I would have figured out who gave Jesus his Y chromosome, uh-huh. and, we would have set, and we would have settled this virgin birth thing, thing once and for all. And as a biologist, Ken, you should know that virgin births are impossible. Right. So, 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 so my response went something along this line, which is, first of all— um, uh, among vertebrates, and that's the kind of organism we are, uh, virgin births are actually quite common. There are several reptilian species of species of lizards that actually have only females in the species, and they and they undergo a kind of pseudo copulation, and they actually produce uh, new embryos by mitosis. They actually do virgin births. Virgin births are actually also common uh, in certain birds uh, among chickens, and especially among turkeys. Um, but virgin births are actually very well known among turkeys. So, um, so I said. So I said. First of all, there's nothing impossible about a virgin birth in the genetic sense among vertebrates. Now, as far as I know, and this is still true. There, uh, there have been no recorded instances of vir- virgin births among mammals, and certainly not among primates. But let's suppose, Richard, for the sake of argument, that I rose to the challenge, and I could give you a real scientific, biological explanation for a virgin birth that you as a scientist would accept. If I was able to do that, then you, Richard, would respond with a shrug and say, see, I told you it wasn't a miracle. <laughs> so, in other words, so in other words, the argument that the whole idea of a virgin birth is contradicted by science is actually something that the believer said, well, of course it is. Because if it wasn't contradicted by science, it wouldn't be a miracle. Now, the other thing that I will say about a virgin birth is this, and that is, you know, we're 2,000 years after this particular event. I don't have any way to go back and apply scientific analysis to the, the argument that Jesus was born of a virgin. So I take the scriptural accounts in one of two ways. One way is it actually happened this became part of the narrative of Jesus's life, and where the, when the Gospels that we have today were first written, which was well after Jesus's death, as we now know, when those were written, they simply incorporated this true story into the Gospel accounts, and we have it today. The other way that I have to understand it is that it didn't happen that way, but when the Gospel accounts were written, the authors of those Gospel accounts wanted to call attention to a group of teachings by this individual that were so extraordinary 
but they wanted to make sure that people 100 and 200 and 1,000 years later would sit up and take notice because they thought it was necessary for their salvation, and therefore they wrote this account almost as a metaphor into the story. I have no way today of knowing which of those two accounts is true. As a Christian, I can accept either one. Do you do you have a lot of these debates? Because I have to imagine a lot of scientists like Dawkins, like Coyne, like PZ, they would all have they all want to ask you about this. They all want to fight you on this until you like shed your faith entirely. Do you have these conversations often or is this something that is very, very, very rarely when you talk about scientists, the people you mentioned are some very outspoken and very public uh, and I've used, I'll use the term again, evangelical atheists, who, who really think that atheism provides very positive benefits for mankind, for society, and they want very bad to spread that idea and to provide support for that. I understand that, and, and I'm, you know, to an extent, I'm sympathetic to the motivation of trying to erase uh, sort of superstitious pathologies from society. But I have to tell you, that I deal with you know, an awful lot of scientists on a daily basis in my field. I go to scientific meetings all the time. I certainly go to science, science, uh, science educator meetings quite a bit. And the feedback I get from the vast majority of people in science is, well, you know, I'm not a person of faith, but I really appreciate your efforts to get people of faith to understand and accept science. That's the most, uh, that's the most common reaction I get. And in terms of your, your your question as to whether scientists are fighting me all the time. Yeah. Since, since the Kitzmiller trial, I have been given an embarrassingly large number of awards <laughs> from the scientific. I'm quite serious about that from the yeah. scientific community, including the award from tri- uh, 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 from AAAS for advancing the public understanding of science, a public service award from my society, the American Society for Cell Biology. Uh, and so, and a couple of awards from science educator associations. Well, I mean, so, I have no just, doubt that yeah. all of them want to thank you for your work and your public understanding and your defense of science. But I, I part of me thinks like the moment you step off that stage, everyone who's part of AAAS is like, all right, let's talk about this one other thing. No, not so much. Okay. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the majority of scientists just do their work. There, there's, there's a wonderful book. Called, that I recommend to any of your listeners called God's Mechanics. Uh, and it's written by Guy Consolmagno, C-O-N-S-O-L-M-A-G-N-O. Now, despite that elegant Italian name, Guy is actually an American. Uh, he's a PhD astrophysicist from MIT, uh, and he has been, he's also a Jesuit brother. And he's uh, the new head of the Vatican Observatory, which is a very serious scientific institution. Well, in that book, a uh, guy went around interviewing scientists and engineers and you know geeky people like him and like me about their religious beliefs and how they affect the practice of science. And basically what he found is that scientists and engineers and other technology specialists um, uh, don't think very hard. Um, about religious beliefs when they're doing science. Science is kind of a universal cultural activity, and it is done uh, by people who are atheists. It's done by agnostics. It's done by Muslims. It's done by Catholics. It's done by Buddhists. It's done by Christians and Jews. And science, in a way, uh, transcends these aspects of belief, and that's 
why most people in the scientific community, if they hear that I'm a Roman Catholic or they hear that Francis Collins, the head of NIH, is an evangelical Christian, they just react with a shrug. And they say, well, you know, that's fine. Believe whatever you want. The question is, how good is your science? Let me ask you one last question that I want to make sure Sure. I get in here, which is, uh, when we look at the political realm right now, uh, as we're talking, Dr. Ben Carson is one of the Republican frontrunners, brilliant neurosurgeon and a creationist. And one of the things I will hear uh, someone like Ken Ham say is you don't have to accept evolution to be a great scientist. Uh, look at all these people who are doing great things, even though they are creationists. How do you respond to something like that? And I, can you explain Ben Carson to me as uh, how is it that how is it that someone can be so good in a specific scientific world in a in a specific field and yet kind of abandon the core principles of science? Well, I want very much to respond to your question in a way (laughs) that does not slur an entire profession. And that profession is surgery. Um, And the reason for that was in June of this year, um, I just had total knee replacement surgery. Um, I had been suffering from a degenerative right knee for years and years and years. The pain had gotten intense. Uh, There was a lot of deterioration. Uh, I had totally replacement surgery by a gifted surgeon up in Boston, and I am walking for the first time in years without pain and a smile on my face and even jogging, and I feel absolutely great. I love surgeons. Um, surgery, and I don't want to put too fine a point on this, surgery is not science. Surgery is art and craft. Now, hopefully it has a scientific basis in the sense that it has an empirical basis. Ben Carson, of course, is a neurosurgeon which is really the most demanding kind of surgery because of, the, because of the implications of making even a small mistake during the operation. And I have absolutely no doubt that Dr. Surgeon, that, yeah, Dr. Carson is not only a surgeon who really understands the nervous system, but also that he has good hand, that he has exceptional dexterity. And you really, really want that in a surgeon. And that's why I say that surgery is art and craft. Uh, surgery, on the other hand, uh, can be done. Uh, without much reference to the scientific process in terms of hypothesis and experiment, uh, without asking the big questions that we ask in the sciences, the big questions in biology are, where do we come from? How do we get here? What, what is the genetic and the molecular mechanisms that produce diversity in the species and provide the raw material for natural selection? Uh, you don't have to ask any of those questions to become a gifted surgeon. Um, and, 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 and therefore, I don't think Dr. Carson should be taken as a scientist per se. Um, I think he's a, a, an expert craftsman at what he does, and I say that not in a way to put craftsmanship down. I thank the good Lord for the craftsmanship of the guy who rebuilt my knee. Um, but in terms of how you can hold those beliefs, um, I think you can do it. Um, and and it, doesn't, it doesn't prove that creationism or intelligent design is good science anymore than the very large number of television weathermen who reject climate change shows that climate change is is not on a firm scientific basis. So I can't explain Ben Carson to you, uh, <laughs> but I can certainly tell you that I don't think that his skill and his achievements in a, 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 as a surgeon um, are, are contradicted or invalidated by his, quite frankly, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, it, uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to use a pejorative word here too much by his mistakes in understanding evolution or evolutionary theory. Fair enough. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate it very much. And my best wishes to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.